Hi, this is Jerry Howard. And this is Jim Tobin. Welcome to Housing Developments. Um, here we are in week eight of the quarantine lockdown, but we are fortunate to have with us uh, a guy who, in my opinion, is the best political prognosticator in the business. He tracks every race at the federal level in the country, uh, and he is overwhelmingly successful, more successful than uh, most, if not all, of his peers. Uh, and of course, I'm talking about NHB alumni Charlie Cook. Charlie, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jerry. At least I'm the best political analyst sitting in this particular basement on this particular day. But anyway, <laughs> great to be with you guys. Uh, it's good to be with you, although I'd rather that we were uh, at a restaurant swapping stories and having a couple of drinks. But hopefully that'll be in the not too distant future. Uh, as we look at the instant situation, you had a uh, an administration that had arguably the best economy since World War Two. Um, as, as, as polarizing an administration as it was, uh, the, on, on the domestic front, it was difficult to argue uh, with the economic success they were having. How does this virus and the handling of the virus impact the forthcoming election from a perspective of the presidential campaign, but also the House and the Senate? Well, that's a great question, Jerry. The, the thing that's been so odd about President, the Trump presidency is that his numbers would be largely impervious to events. In other words, really good things would happen and his numbers wouldn't go up that much and really bad things would happen and his numbers wouldn't go down much. And that, um, you know, if he were a stop, you would say he's got the narrowest trading range of any president we've ever had. So. On the one hand, he had six consecutive months of 50-year low unemployment rates, which, you know, any other president would kill for to get. But his approval rating never cracked 50% in a major national poll. But on the other hand, he could have stories that are awfully damaging or say things that he probably shouldn't have. And his numbers may dip a point or two, but not much at all. So... His numbers just don't move up or down. And that normally you have a crisis like this, uh, like the, this, the, the coronavirus. Normally they would be a unification where the American people would come together behind, rally around the flag, rally around the president. And they usually do that whether, I mean, you know, with the Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, President Kennedy's job approval rate went up. So normally people unite at a time of a crisis, and then after that it kind of depends on how it goes and what happens. But So you didn't have this coming together that you normally have, but then his numbers, you know, when he said a couple of things he probably should, his numbers didn't go that much. So, um, you know, I think this that they're just people – 75% of Americans have a strong opinion about him. They either love him or they love him, but they don't move back and forth. And, uh, and as a result, this virus has had less of an impact on his, his, his approval ratings than you would expect. But the other thing that's happened is that 
the economy, um, he wasn't getting the benefit from it that he should have back then. But, you know, he's not getting blamed for it now. But the thing is, he was counting on, you know, a lot of people think there's going to be a headwind that, you know, that, you know, you have a deep recession, it'll kill the president's reelection campaign. Well, the thing is, with him, for him, uh, I don't think anybody's going to blame the economy on him, the recession on him. But on the other hand, he was counting on having a tailwind, you know, some wind in his sails to kind of put him over, over the finish line first. And that probably isn't going to happen either. So, this is uh, unlike any other set of dynamics that we've ever seen. And, you know, the popular vote will be top boring, but the electoral college, man, this is likely to be a photo finish again. Um, and that's, that's, that's pretty amazing under these circumstances. And, and Charlie, do you, what would you say are the key states uh, to Trump uh, possibly uh, maintaining uh, another victory in the electoral college? Well, I think the, the uh, you know, the three that we always point to are the three that effectively, you know, settled the election last time. Uh, Michigan, where he won by uh, two-tenths of a percentage point, and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by seven-tenths. So it was a total of a little less than 78,000 vote margin in those three states combined. And, and in those, um, well, then there's three more that have kind of joined, and all three were states that he carried by terribly narrow margins last time, but are getting a look, uh, even more competitive this time. Uh, all three are in the Sun Belt, Arizona, uh, Florida, and North Carolina. So those are going to be the six states that are, you know, I think we're going to be watching most closely. Uh, in terms of, you know, he carried 30 states and Hillary Clinton carried 20. And of the 20 states that Hillary Clinton carried, um, you know, uh, I think the, they're, the Trump campaign is going to target Wisconsin, I mean, excuse me, Minnesota and uh, New Hampshire and Maine. Those would be the three of hers that are in play. But he's got, um, you know, six, seven, eight that he carried that are close to the edge. So the battlefield will be, you know, call it 10 states or less. Um, if you wanted to have a really expansive battleground, you should get up to, uh, you know, 15, 16. I saw the other day that the when the RNC was doing some polling uh, on on the presidential, they – they had a 17-state battlefield. So it just depends on sort of how narrow or wide-angle lens you want to use for inclusion. Charlie, this is Jim Tobin. Uh, just a, a quick question on you know, when you when you think about those swings that, that Jerry mentioned and, and, and you walked through. Uh, you've seen some early polling out there uh, that shows you know Biden in the lead here. You know, nationally he's in the lead. Um, how, how how confident are you in 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 the in polling accuracy right now? Given the mistakes that were made uh, in in the sixteen election, um, do you think we've learned any lessons? And the, the polls that our members are watching. Uh, are, are they accurate, or should we just throw them out? What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a great question. And the thing is that when people say, well, in 2016, the polls were wrong, and, and it kind of depends on which polls you were looking at because and what, what they were measuring. Uh, people say, well, the polls said that Hillary Clinton's going to win, and, you know, she obviously didn't. Well, you know, the national polls measure what? The national popular vote. 
And she was averaging three points ahead in the real clear politics, averaged all the major national polls, three points, and she won the popular vote by 2.1 percentage points. Now, you know, we all know that the, uh, the national popular vote in five bucks will get you a coffee, a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Um, and the polling in the states, by and large, was pretty accurate, but there were three surprises. There were three places where the polls were just flat wrong, and that was, uh, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And what was interesting was in the national polls, after it was over with, the pollsters went back and looked to say, okay, we're, you know, the national polls only averaged nine-tenths of a point off, but even then, why were they off? And what they found that there was an ever-so-slight undersampling of whites with less than a four-year college degree and actually whites that lived, whites with less than four-year college degree, particularly those that lived in manufacturing areas, and a slight oversampling of college-educated whites. And so now then you look at the three states that were surprising, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all have unusually large, larger than average, unusually large percentages of whites with less than a four-year college degree. And they're all manufacturing states. So that little bitty off that didn't move the needle much nationally did move it more than, more than a little in those three states. And that's where, that's where the off was, where, you know, we kind of got used to watching the popular vote because we had, a, you know, we had had close presidential elections for a long time. I mean, 1948, Truman Dewey at 60, Kennedy Nixon at 68, Nixon, Humphrey, Wallace and, uh, you know, 76 Carter Ford and 92, uh, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot. We'd had really close races before, but the popular vote in the Electoral College had both gone the same way, so we kind of got spoiled or distracted. And then 2000, Bush Moore happened, and thought, well, that was kind of odd. And then 16 years later, we have it again. And what's become clearer now than we saw before was that the Republican vote for president is just a lot more efficiently allocated around the country. The Democrats run up the score in California and win California by, you know, four million votes and New York State by a million and, you know, I forgot how much Illinois is, a half million, seven hundred thousand. While Republicans, they win their big states by smaller margins, and so they're not wasting a lot of votes running up the score. We're done to hell. But, but we're the, in 2000, so 2016, yes, there were some polls that were off, but it was primarily just in those three states, the national ones, you know, nonsense of a point, that's actually pretty good. And then in 2018, the midterm elections, the polls were just dead on. So there was a little bit of a, um, you know, it was a little quirky, and pollsters are certainly, now what they're doing is doing a lot more weighting of the data to make sure they're not oversampling, you know, undersampling whites with less than a four-year college degree or oversampling college-educated whites. I mean, they're doing some, some things like that to make sure that doesn't happen again. But to be honest, it was really kind of more of an anomaly. And as I said, the polls in 2018, uh well, they were about as right as you'll ever, ever see. So, and one other thing, and that is the bigger the voter turnout, the, the more the pool of the voters just looks like all registered voters. 
And, you know, we're expecting an awfully big turnout this time, just as we did in 2018, where it was the, the biggest midterm election turnout since 1914. Uh, we're expecting a pretty big one, to, even despite the virus, and uh, which means this polling, it, it's less of a problem figuring out who is and who is going to vote when ask majority of people vote. Charlie, who does a big turnout number favor then, if, if you're anticipating as big, Democrats or Republicans? Well, you know, the old adage was, you know, a big turnout helps Democrats and a smaller turnout helps Republicans. But to be honest, that's never been statistically proven. And that, you know, it's like, oh, if it rains, it hurts, it hurts Democrats. Well, you know, that's really not so much the case. And I just think it means that the differences in turnout levels of different groups is less when it's kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats. And when turnout starts getting real high, uh, the differences between one group's turnout levels and another gets less and less. Um, so I, I don't think it will. The interesting thing is that President Trump is very critical of vote by mail. But the interesting thing is the, the academic research has shown that uh, over the years that uh, there's no partisan tilt of people that vote by mail. And uh, generally speaking, vote by mail, um, what you have is usually it's people that were going to vote anyway just voting early. And, uh, and that's the thing is that early and absentee, uh, early voting, absentee voting, it really hasn't hasn't increased turnout uh, like a lot of the people that push it uh, say it will. So I, I don't think it it, it will uh, make that much of a difference. I mean, one thing is that that um, vote by mail helps whichever party does a better job of of, of using it, of utilizing it, of of getting. You know, whether it's places where you need an absentee ballot request or an early voting request or not. Um, and with as much money as the Trump campaign and the RNC has, uh, I would, you know, my guess is even though they're, they're talking about, well, we don't like it, we don't like it. My guess is there are a whole lot of people at work at the Trump campaign trying to figure out how to make this thing work to their benefit. How do they get you know, ballots or absentee ballot requests into the hands of their people and how to, you know, motivate their people to uh, send in their request for an absentee vote or to vote or early vote, uh, a mail vote or to, uh, to, to get theirs back. So I don't think it naturally benefits one side, either side, particularly. Charlie, how, how has the quarantine and the fact that uh, particularly for Vice President Biden, but also for President Trump and his rallies. The retail campaigning has been put on hold uh, for three months and looks like it's going to be even more months uh, going forward. How does that impact the campaign, in your view? Well, it impacts it a lot, but you can, you know, on the one hand, the Trump campaign was using those rallies very effectively to capture names of volunteers to capture a lot of the data off the cell phones so that they could, you know, micro-target and get back and stay in contact with those people. So they were using these rallies uh, very, very, very 
this, uh, effectively, I mean, their data operations is, is, you know, the best anybody's ever seen. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you say, okay, what is Joe Biden's biggest single liability? Well, I would say that he oftentimes sticks his foot in his mouth and says things that he probably shouldn't have. Well, you know, when he's locked in his basement, Wilmington, <laughs> he's sort of, <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in some ways, this is shortening the game and minimizing the time and exposure uh, for Joe Biden to say some of his Bidenisms and, you know, where he meant to say one thing and says something else. And, uh, you know, and the thing is, it's not age. It's just, you know, Joe Biden, you know, you guys have watched Joe Biden for a long time. That's just him. That he, he gets excited and gets talking and sometimes his, uh, um, you know, sometimes his mouth is running a little faster than his brain and he says things that, uh, that he probably didn't mean to say or weren't quite right. So, uh, I don't think, I mean, I think it's just changed everything, but whether it changes the outcome, you know, whoever loses is going to blame the virus no matter what. So, um, but I don't know that it really disadvantages either person. It just sort of change, changes the way it's done. And speaking of uh, Vice President Biden, do you think this, uh, this recently uh, divulged uh, accusations are going to become a big part of the campaign going forward, or will they just sort of fade away? Well, I mean, you know, these are, these are the kind of thing that you've got to take, you know, very, very, very seriously. But, you know, if, 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 you know, if we were not, if we were talking off the record and put a gun at my head, I could come up with some good reasons why somebody might not want to vote for Joe Biden. But the thing is, having worked on and around the Hill, um, I defy anybody that's worked on the Hill, covered the Hill, or lobbied the Hill during the 36 years he was in the U.S. Senate who ever heard a whiff of anything like this. Um, I mean, uh, you know, we were, you know, when you talk to women that worked or on around the Hill, covered, you know, you say they, they kind of knew who the predators were. And they knew who the guys, who, who the senators and congressmen that would get antsy. They knew. I mean, you know, people kind of knew who was doing that kind of thing. And, um, I, I, I never heard a word about anything like this, nor have I found anybody that did. And actually the other night we were, uh, we have zocktails with friends, uh, that is, uh, cocktails using Zoom, uh, in three couples, four couples actually. And one of them was a woman that had a Republican lifelong worked on the Hill or a Republican senator from Delaware, which kind of narrows it down a good bit. <laughs> and knew Biden when he was a Newcastle County councilman. And she said, you know, I never heard anything. I mean, it may be a hit on anybody, much less assaulting them. Never anything like this. So the thing is, I, these and I'm not going to put you guys in the spot, but a quarter of the Senate office building, does someone really think something like that? Somebody would do that in a quarter of a Senate office building? Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I can think of reasons. If you want to say Joe Biden's too old, sure, go ahead. You know, if you want to say somebody, you know, he had two brain aneurysms, uh, you know, back in 1988, sure, go ahead. I mean, you can say whatever you want, but at the same time, is it 
going to throw a wrinkle in his campaign? Heck, yeah. And uh, it, it um, as I said, I, I don't, I don't, I think we should take all these accusations very credible, but I think they ought to be checked out. So any idea or where do you think uh, the uh, vice presidential sweepstakes are on the Democratic side right now? Yeah, I, it, it's funny. Everybody tends to look at this by, uh, well, you need to do, um, you know, go after some, a certain demographic group. I, I, I think that's kind of a simplistic notion, to be perfectly honest, because I don't think there's a real relationship. I mean, you know, think of the two times... Uh, 1984, uh, Walter Mondale picks Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman to be on a major party ticket, um, and loses 49 states, uh, and loses the women's vote by 13 points. I, you know, that didn't seem to do anything. Um, you know, John McCain picking Sarah Palin, uh, you know, boy, that sure didn't help much. This idea that, well, you gotta pick a black woman if you want to get the black vote out or a black, uh, I don't, I don't really, kind of buy that and I, I frankly think it's kind of insulting to think that just because you pick somebody in a group they're all going to turn out in real big margins I, I just don't think that happens at all if I were if I were Vice President Biden what I would do is I would say you know I want to go with someone that just projects competence and seriousness and merit and I wouldn't pick anybody that just looked blatantly political it looked like it was a op, you know a pick just for optics and you know because frankly i don't think it helps much i think people vote for president they don't vote for vice president and particularly with with, with president trump that you anybody that thinks that who a running mate is is going to overshadow whether you like or dislike president trump I think that's nuts. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, so I don't think, uh, you know, if you hear, you know, you hear people talk, uh, you, you know, it sounds like, you know, Amy Klobuchar is, is, a, you know, will probably be a finalist and Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan will be one. And, you know, I hear a lot of talk about Kamala Harris, for example, but, you know, uh, Democrats, uh, you know, they're going to win California no matter what. And I didn't notice Senator Harris winning, doing particularly well among African Americans. So I'm not sure that would really boost the numbers much. Um, I would just go with someone that exuded competence. And the thing is, I would be seriously, I would seriously consider going for someone that had some really, really serious executive branch governing experience on the federal level. I mean, somebody that do, I mean, and somebody say, okay, that's a serious pick. That was not just for politics. And, uh, you know, I know this will never happen, but I think the most intriguing name I've heard is uh, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who was the uh, OMB budget director under Obama and secretary of HHS and, had been on the domestic policy, uh, on the policy staff in the Clinton White House. You know, just somebody that like, wow, this is a smart person who really knows this stuff and knows how the executive branch works. I think something like that would be a very refreshing pick as opposed to sort of checking some demographic box or political box or uh, geographic box. Uh, I think that's, 
I don't think that works. And I think it, you know, uh, and, but again, I, you know, people are going to be voting for president, not for vice president. So I don't think it matters. So I think it's just something for us to talk about once we know who the nominees are going to be. Hey, Charlie, it's, it's Jim. You, you talked earlier, uh, in about the 18 races and, uh, and, and the, in the turnout. Obviously, that led to the House of uh, Representatives flipping from, from Republican to Democratic control. Let's, let's, uh, let's leave the presidential sphere for, for a moment. Obviously, coattails are going to be a, a big factor for, for both parties from their, their, uh, their lead, their lead dogs. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about, about the House. What, do, you, do you see a, a pathway for the Republicans to take back control of of the house from nancy pelosi um it's it's awfully tough it, it's tough on a uh it's tough on on two levels i mean when you go through the race by race analysis it's it's not hard to see how republicans could pick up a half dozen six eight seats uh but it, it's it's uh, um i don't know any independent, nonpartisan person, analyst that's putting good odds on Republicans getting it back. So whether you do it race by race, if you look at the what they call the generic congressional ballot test that, that you and Charlie are both familiar with, where you ask people, you know, if the electoral day would vote for the Democrat candidate for Congress or Republican candidate for Congress, that, which is actually a fairly good yardstick, not a number of seats, but sort of which way the wind's blowing. Uh, you know, and is it light, moderate, or heavy? Um, Democrats are ahead by about seven percentage points, which is basically where it was in 2018. Um, and you look at, at where, and well, frankly, the, the campaign committees, they're fundraising, where Democrats on the House and Senate level are out, out raising by fairly substantial margins their counterpart committees on the Republican side. So I, I don't really see that, that, that happening. And, where, where Democrats picked up seats in 2018, their 40-seat net gain, it was in the suburbs. And it, and, and, and it was in, you know, suburbs of Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Richmond. That's just the ones that Sunbelt. And the thing is, in these, sun, in these suburbs, particularly more college-educated suburbs, um, it's not that they're anti-Republican so much, as, but that's where President President Trump's numbers are particularly weak, where he is not an asset. And, and I think that the House and Senate both, um, you know, their control will be decided in the suburbs. And uh, that's not that's not looking real great for House Republicans right now. And and it, it's created some weak spots for, the, for Republicans in the Senate as well. I mean, they had a great map in 2018 for the Senate where it was uh, – it was a lot of red states, a lot of states with, uh, you know, disproportionately large uh, small-town rural populations that, that where President Trump is at his strongest. Um, so that was a great map for them. Uh, this time, both in the House and the Senate, the map isn't looking as favorable. And the Senate's going to be a photo finish. It really will be. But I don't think the House uh, I don't think the House is, very cl- is going to be particularly close. Um, you know, and one last thing on the Senate is that, um, you know, Americans are voting more like in a parliamentary way uh, than they used to. Uh, 2016 was the first election since we started the direct election of senators back in 1914, where every single U.S. Senate race 
went exactly the same direction that state was going in the presidential. In other words, a Republican won every single Senate race that, that Donald Trump was carrying, and a Democrat won every single Senate race that Hillary Clinton was carrying. And, um, and the numbers were not almost that high, uh, pretty high in 2018 midterm as well, and where there's just not a lot of ticket splitting going on. And, and, uh, um, it, it's, it's a tough, this is going to be a tough map for him. So I'd say the Senate is going to be, it's basically 50-50, but the House is more, you know, 75% likely stay in, in Democratic hands. Charlie, staying on the House for, for one, one more question. Uh, given the, I, I, that, the, that the House is likely to stay Democrat, do you think it's a net gain for Republicans, though? And, and the, the, the follow-on question to that is, uh, if the if the Democratic majority shrinks somewhat in the House, but of course not enough to flip it, doesn't that make the the AOC faction that much more much more powerful in a smaller uh, a smaller majority? And I'm you know harkening back ten years to John Boehner and then uh, and, and then Paul Ryan's majorities and, and the Tea Party and, and and what what that faction uh, drove drove the agenda there. Well, I, I think it's, it is more likely than not that Republicans will pick up some. Uh, to me, the over and under would be about five or six seats. Uh, but uh, to be honest, I don't think AOC has that much influence in the House, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I, I, mean, I think she's more figment of the news media's imagination than anything else. Um, you know, heck, she was better known than almost all but a handful of House members before she just went into office. But the thing is, anybody that thinks she's pulling a lot of votes her way, um, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't frankly see that see that happening. Um, that you know, you've got a, a, a you've got the squad, but the squad's only what five six. Um, I don't. I don't see a platoon or a battalion out here. I only see a squad. And uh, um, so I don't, you know, if the house is close, is, is really, really close, could it make a difference? Yeah. But uh, to me, that would make more of a difference if Republicans were picking up, you know, a dozen, 15, 16, if they were just right on the cusp of the majority, but not quite. Uh, that's where a handful of people might make a difference, but um, she's, she, you know, I, I think that uh, it makes for great copy, great news, but, uh, um, uh, you know, and, I, and, and frankly, I've noticed she had messed with Nancy Pelosi in a good while. Um, I, I think she may have done that one time too often or too many times. And, um, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't remember the last time I heard of her messing something up on the floor or messing something up in the house for Pelosi and the leadership. I mean, she sure tried in the first few months, but, uh, um, uh, you know, and she actually uh, they raised money for some challengers to Democratic incumbents, and I don't think any of them this time, but, I, you know, as I recall, I don't think any of them have lost. So, uh, you know, I think she's kind of over, I mean, she's great news, but uh, I, I think it's kind of overrated. So unless Republicans are picking up over a dozen seats, over 14 or 15 seats, I don't see the squad as playing a, a pivotal role 
like you know, like you've seen some groups have have back in in in, in the in the in the old days, right? Right. Charlie, one final question, and we'll let you go for now. And that is, uh, if you're going to watch the elections uh, on the first Tuesday in November, uh, what three races or four races would you watch? And you say, if they all break the right way, it's going to be a good night for Republicans. And what races need to break the right way for it to be a good are, night are for you Democrats? Presidentially, or or what? Uh, Senate, Senate and House. Well, Senate and House. I mean, House. I gosh, I don't. Uh, let me let me let me focus more on the Senate. I think uh, Arizona with McSally. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty uphill. Uh, as is Gardner, Colorado, and I, I say that uh, I think you know Corey. I consider Corey Brent. Um, I would say North Carolina Tillis would be right on the edge. Um, a lot of people would put Collins. Uh, what happens in Kansas? Um, and part of that is what happens in the Republican primary. Uh, and what happened in Montana? So those would be the three or four that I would think would be deciding who's going to be in the majority of the Senate. Go with maybe, you know, North Carolina, Maine, Kansas, Montana. And then, uh, Oh gosh, on the house, I just don't think you could do that with anyone. Uh, um, I mean, Republicans would just need a lot of breaks coming their going their way. Um, so uh, I, I don't think I'd want to want to go there in the in the presidential. I think if you were going to pick one state to look at, which is probably a mistake, but if you did, uh, I'd say Wisconsin is probably the closest thing to a tipping point state there is, where if you could know which way one state was going, um, I'd say Wisconsin as much as anything else. But, you know, you'd be better off with a kind of a basket of a half dozen states. And, uh, uh, you know, and then it would be the Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina would be the six I would want to know presidentially. Charlie, thanks so much for your time. And to our listeners, we say that this really is just a teaser as Charlie's going to do an in-depth webinar for our leadership meeting in June. Uh, stay tuned, uh, and NEHB will get out more and more information on that. Uh, Jim, do you have any final thoughts? No, I just want to say thanks, Charlie. You're the best. Well, thank you, guys. I hope everybody uh, stays safe and uh, we can put this economy to get back on track and you guys to get building and the rest of us to get by it. You're here, Charlie. Thanks very much. Say hey to Lucy for us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.